Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends, old and new, and have honest conversations. Today I welcome Jen Eaton to the Front Porch, a new friend of mine, acquaintance, whatever we want to call it. I'm going to stick with friend, though. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be here. It is great to have you here. In fact, uh, audience, this is only the second time that I've really gotten to talk to Jen. Uh, I got to know Jen through a friend, and we had a great meal together, and I, the conversation was so good that I was like, Jen, you have to be on my podcast. So I invited her, and she said, yeah, let's do it. So I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show, and I can't wait to dig into some things that I want to talk to you about. Awesome. I'm excited. Well, Jen, I always like to start each episode off kind of the same way to give our audience a little bit of background about you. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and maybe give us kind of like a snapshot of your childhood? Did you have siblings? What kind of things were you interested in? That type of stuff. Sure. So I am originally from Juniata County, so pretty well in the center of the state. Um, my family has been in Juniata County for, oh, 150 years or so. Um, my dad became a minister when I was eight years old. And from there, we moved around a lot. Um, he's United Methodist. So they are, they practice an itinerant system and, uh, moved a lot. I went to three high schools in four years. Um, I have two younger brothers who are, are both wonderful. We're all about two years apart. So we were always very close. Um, Growing up, I was I was very into history. I don't think that's probably a surprise. <laughs> um, kind of a crafty kid, like to be involved in the arts, play piano. Um, my parents were always really great about taking us to museums and historic sites. Um, so that's something that was always deeply ingrained in me. Well, there's a couple things I want to ask you about just in that opening part right there. So uh, moving around a lot. So I, I did not have that experience growing up. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, what did you say? Three high schools in four years? Yes. What, what was that like? And I guess, like, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, at the time... Uh, it was kind of rough, but I think now looking back on it, it, it was a really great experience. Um, I think one of the biggest things I took away from that was learning to be flexible in just about every environment I was in. Um, so I moved, I moved after my freshman year and after my junior year. So I started a brand new school for my senior year of high school, which, uh, sort of forced me to be a little more outgoing than I was probably comfortable with at the time. Um, but uh, all the areas we were in growing up were, were different for a lot of reasons, generally rural, but you know how different communities in Pennsylvania are. And I got exposed to a lot of different kinds of people with different upbringings. And uh, you know, I always tried to treat it like an adventure. Well, I can't imagine that that was typical for someone your age at that time. I would imagine like every time dad came into your bedroom was like, Jen, we're moving again. Like, I, were you like screaming and kicking like, no, dad, I just made some friends. Or was it like, well, okay, off we go again. 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably the last time was the toughest. You know, it's like, man, my senior year, really? That's uh, that's going to be new. But we actually landed in a really great place. Um, I made friends really fast. Um, and, you know, my dad and mom were always really great at supporting us and, you know, recognizing that that transition was, was tough. It was tough for them, too. Uh, you know, my dad had to make himself at home in a brand new uh church communities. So we were all kind of learning together. And it was, like I said, it was quite an adventure. <laughs> well, that was that kind of leads me to the other question I was going to ask you about in regards to this this part of your life. So your father became a minister as a, as a second career? He did. Yeah. Okay. So what role did church have then in your home? Was it like expected every Sunday you were in church listening to dad preach? Um, was there any pushback to that? Or, you know, what role did faith play? Uh, it, faith was always uh, very important in our house. When we were younger, it was expected that we were going to go to church every Sunday and, you know, um, be cognizant of the fact that as the pastor's family, all eyes were probably on you. Um, as we got older, you know, we got into high school and we're, we're a little more independent. And my, my dad was really great about letting that choice up to us. He said, you know, this is what I believe. I hope that you find a place of faith that you're comfortable with too. But if this isn't it, that's okay. So that was great. I never met your dad, but what a, what a gift to be able to say that to his own children. Because if we're thinking like the stereotype, I don't know, even thinking like watching Dirty Dancing and you got the, the minister and the daughter and you know, it's like the expectation is X, Y, Z. And here you had, a, you, had a, you had a faith leader and your own father that was saying, look, maybe this isn't, your, isn't for you. I just, I find that really, uh, to a certain extent, refreshing um, in, a, in a weird way. Uh, at the time, did you understand, probably, well, I'm gonna ask you, at the time, did you understand like how big of a, of a comment that must've been coming from him personally? Because I'm sure deep down he was hoping, you know, oh, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be a good little Methodist, you're gonna, you know, stay in the faith. But at the same time, he also opened a door for other possibilities. Yeah, no, I mean, I think when I was a teenager, that didn't sink in at all. My my main thought was usually, sweet, I don't have to get up and go to church today if I don't want to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now I can, I can really appreciate that. And I think it's been able to foster a lot of deep conversations about faith. Um, and, you know, I'm involved. I don't, I don't go to church every Sunday, but I am very involved in the uh, the historical and museum commission for the church. That's something that I volunteer for, and that's a, a thing that my dad and I share together that that I've always really enjoyed. So, you know, he rubbed off on me. That's great. That is really great. So, you mentioned as a kid, you got interested in history. Uh, w looking back on it, what was there one event, or was there what what fostered a love of history for a young girl? Oh, gosh. So it was a couple of things, really. Um, I remember when I was, I couldn't have been more than maybe eight or nine years old, I got this book at the book fair in school. And it was uh, a book about Plymouth Plantation, but written from the perspective of a young girl who worked at Plymouth Plantation and played a role as a pilgrim. And I was absolutely fascinated. I was like, this girl, she's like my age, but she plays dress up as a pilgrim. 
it's like she's time traveling. And I thought that was the greatest thing that she was immersed in this other time altogether. And I thought, you know, that's pretty cool. I would really like that. And, you know, I spent, I must've looked at that book 10 times thinking, man, her life is so different than mine, but she's still like a modern kid. So that really sucked me in. Um, between that and, you know, my, my parents were huge history buffs. My grandparents were big history people. So it was something that was always part of my life. So were you the kid that was watching like PBS documentaries in high school instead of watching, I don't know, Saved by the Bell or whatever was popular yes, at the time? Good. Cause absolutely. I was, I was that kid too. So, uh, <laughs> It is crazy. I love the aspect. And I never even thought about that. Um, I mean, I kind of was reading the same kind of stuff that you were as a kid. And, and the p listeners of the podcast know that I'm a history nerd. And and uh, but this idea of time travel has always so, so it's like this fascination with me because I often ask my own students, I say, hey, if you could travel forward in time or back in time, what would you choose? And a lot of kids will often say to me, oh, they want to go ahead and see what the future's like. And I would never choose that, no matter Absolutely what. Absolutely not, never. <laughs> so you had this love of history and you decided to do something with it uh, after high school. Uh, tell us about that journey. So you go on to my wife's alma mater, Lycoming yeah. College. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I like Homing and I have a long, long relationship. When my dad decided to become a minister, that's where he went to school. Um, so I was a young kid watching my dad go to college, and he, he had us on campus a lot. Um, and he studied religion, obviously, and he studied archaeology. So it, what he was learning in school really rubbed off on me. And when I was looking at colleges, it's like, hey, you know, I remember being there with my dad. I lived in that area. It, that was really like home for me. And I went back. And I mean, it was never a question for me what I was going to study in school. Um, I double majored in history and Near Eastern culture and archaeology. Um, I kind of had a secret hope that I might be Indiana Jones someday. Like, <laughs> but it turns out actually doing archaeology is not nearly as fun as as it looks on TV. Um, but I, I had a really great experience at Lycoming. I had great professors. Um, they, they fostered a deep love in me of my field, um, pushed me to study things that probably were very much outside of what I thought I was interested in. Um, you know, pushed me to learn to write and to think critically. Um, it was a great four years there. Um, I went right into graduate school when I, after college at Penn State Harrisburg into their American Studies program. And again, you know, ran into some great professors who sort of shaped, shaped my ideas about the things that I like to study, um, really kind of pushed me towards uh, being in the museum field. Um, that was always my main interest, but you know, you hear a lot about, oh, that's such a hard field to be in and you're never going to make any money. And that was never important to me. It's like, this is where, this is where I want to be. I want to be with this stuff. Well, I guess one question I was thinking of, you know, you go off to college, you want to study history. I think for a lot of people, if they're studying history, one avenue would be education. I, well, I could be a history teacher. Um, was that something that ever crossed your mind or were you dead set on, no, I don't want to be a high school history teacher. I want to do something else. Yeah, I was I was pretty dead set on not uh, going that route. Um, 
I, I was very shy in college and I could not imagine ever standing in front of a classroom full of kids. Um, I found that very intimidating. Um, and, you know, I had been in so many museums as a kid. It's like, I want to be there. I can do history and maybe not, not be in front of a room full of people. So you had mentioned you, you had concentrate. Your second major was in Near East studies. But then when you went to grad school, it was American studies. Was there a reason that pulled you then when you looked at the grad level? Well, I'm going to concentrate on American history. Um, I think a lot of that was, you know, just being realistic about job prospects. Um, <laughs> as wonderful as it would be to, you know, go to the Middle East and study or, you know, really the only routes open to you at that point are finding a way to be in that part of the world or becoming a professor. And, you know, at the time I was like, boy, I don't want to keep going. I'm not ready for a PhD. And uh, the American studies really drew me in. That was kind of a multidisciplinary program. I got into sociology, anthropology, and it's like, you know what? Uh, this nation's pretty cool that we've got a lot of wonderful history that I've been ignoring. Um, so, you know, I'm really glad in the long run that I made that choice. Okay. So let's transition now into your professional career. Cause you've, you've hinted already that you ended up going down the, the road of museums and museum studies. Um, you're, I was, I looked, I looked, I did a little homework, of course, and I noticed that I, I know where you're working now, and we'll get to that point here in a little bit, but you spent some time at the State Museum in Harrisburg, too. Uh, was that your first professional job after, after studies, or how did, how did you end up at the State Museum? Yeah, that was my first professional job. Um, Actually, I had interned for the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission as an undergrad when I was a junior in college. So I was familiar with the State Museum, with with the agency as a whole. And, you know, that had kind of become my goal. Well, you know, I want I want to work for there. We have sites all across the state. Um, so I was always kind of keeping my eyes open for opportunities. And in 2013, uh, an opening came up for a temporary inventory curator. And I thought, well, that's that's my door. That's my door into the field. Well, can we can we explain what that means to sure. people that don't know that term? Absolutely. So we were tasked with the job of going through the museum storage areas and accounting for every single object the museum owned one by one. Okay, my first question would be, why doesn't the museum already know that? We do. <laughs> okay. We do. Okay. Um, but just like, uh, just like a retail store or a grocery store, you do inventory every so often to ensure that what you have on paper is what you have in real life. Uh, so that's a process that most museums undertake. Uh, the goal is to try to do that every five or 10 years. Um, that's a lofty goal for most museums. I think, I think a lot of people have no idea that if they go to a museum and they walk through the museum and they see everything they have on display, I think a lot of people probably leave that museum thinking, well, that's what they have. But I've learned from friends in the field that I have quite a number of friends that work in museums and museum studies. And they always tell me like, you're seeing an, a 10th 
of what we have. It, it's really crazy to think about that. And it is like the end of Indiana Jones and the, and the Rage of the Lost Ark. It's like, there's like this giant room with all these like boxes and stuff. Um, were you surprised when you got like the keys to that door and you walked in that room or that warehouse or wherever all this stuff is kept and like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff? Or yes. were you ready for it, I guess? <laughs> I mean, like they, we had been through those spaces when I was an intern many years before that. But to like go in that room and really get a sense of just how much is there was very overwhelming at first. It's hundreds of thousands of objects. It's so crazy. It's amazing. It is a treasure hunt behind the scenes. How does, so they have this, these, 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 these millions or hundred thousand objects or whatever the state museum has. This is a question I guess I have. So as a person coming in and I'm seeing this stuff, who gets to decide, oh, we're gonna put we're gonna pull this out of out of storage and put it on display this this these couple months? How did how does that process happen? Oh, that's uh, that's a great question. It's kind of a team decision. Um, usually a group of curators and educators get together and uh, say, you know what, we want to talk about X subject. What do we have in the museum that helps to tell that story? And then the curators scurry off and say, oh, well, we have X, Y, and Z. Um, but it's it's very much a collaborative effort between a big team of curators and a big team of educators trying to get together and tell a specific story about some aspect of Pennsylvania's history. So I guess my other question would be, you know, uh, grandpa dies and we have a house full of stuff that maybe maybe there's some really cool stuff. We don't know. And we're like the family's like, you know what? This belongs in a museum. And we drive down to Harrisburg and we have our U-Haul wagon and the trailer's full of stuff. Um who then at the museum level gets to make the decision of like, oh, we'll take this, we'll take that, that we don't want. And, and like, how does that process work? Yeah, great question. Um, with with the state museum and with all of the state-owned historic sites, it's a, it's a multi-step process. Um, the curator gets the first go at it. So when that guy pulls up with his wagon full of grandpa's stuff, uh, the curator will come out and say, well, you know, I do like X, Y, and Z. So let's let's hear the story about it. Does this fit the museum's greater mission? Um, but then the part of that process that people really don't know a lot about is there is a committee of curators from all across the state who get the final say um, in, in what each museum can collect. So I can say at my museum, well, I would really like this object because I think it tells this story. But that that team would get together and say, well, you know what? You already have like six of that thing that tells kind of the same story. Do you really need that one? Um, because most museums get way more offers of donation than they can ever uh, accept. I guess that was my, my follow up question was if 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 I don't pull up with grandpa's stuff, is there someone that works for the state system that's constantly like, it's kind of weird, but like watching estate sales to see stuff that's coming up? Like, I don't know, you you know, for those of you that are, you know, follow that kind of stuff, you know, you'll see in the newspaper online, oh, you know, here's uh, the Doug Mainford estate and we have six Civil War objects and 50 guns and I don't know, a 1932 Woolrich jacket or something like that. Is there somebody who works for the state that is like, watching estate sales to see if stuff is coming up that maybe they wouldn't have known about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That's kind of a thing that falls into the curator's job description, too. I mean, we all kind of have lists 
how do you do that? I mean, you think about the the thousands of estate sales that happen and auctions that happen across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania every year. There's I mean, thousands. Yeah. How does I, I would not want that job. I mean, it'd be crazy. Yeah. Well, I think part of what makes it easier is we don't have a, a great budget for being able to go out and buy those things. So a lot of us, you know, we have we have an idea in our head. There's like maybe five really great things that we don't have that we want. And so you might you might comb through a list, like say there's a big decorative arts auction coming up. Um, maybe that's the place that you pick up your painted blanket chest, or um, you know that a certain firm holds a firearms auction once a year, then you might check that list. You have to be really selective. It can be it can be kind of challenging because it's really easy to get overwhelmed with just the sheer amount of stuff. And then I guess the, the museum would say, okay, yeah. Uh, John, John Smith's auction is on Saturday. Here's, you can spend up to X amount of dollars go. And if you can get something great and if not, so be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're always being cognizant too. Like it's not, necessarily just about the object we we want it to have a really great story behind it as well um so that tends to thin the herd too um we get a lot of calls from folks who are big time collectors of you know very specific items and they might have the best example of a canteen that we've ever seen but it's just a canteen unless i can tell a story about who carried it? What was their experience like? How does that relate to the larger picture of Pennsylvania's role in the military? Perfect. Um, you just transitioned perfectly. So let's talk about your current role. You sure. uh, yeah, Tell us your title and where you're at. So I'm the curator at the Pennsylvania Military Museum in Bullsburg, just outside of State College. Yes. And if anybody has ever been to the center part of the state, you've probably heard about the Military Museum. Now, if, if you've seen the signs for Penn's Cave, you go to Penn's Cave and then you go to the Military Museum and you do that tour. Uh, and, and there probably are Pennsylvanians and people outside of Pennsylvania that listen to the podcast that maybe have never been there. So if you were to give the elevator pitch for the Military Museum of Pennsylvania, what would that sound like? Sure. So we are the state's official museum for preserving and caring for the history of Pennsylvania's involvement in military conflicts around the world. Um, we tell the story of Pennsylvania's military history from 1747 to the present day. Um, I, I would say that our museum is pretty heavily focused on our involvement in World War One and World War Two. Um, that's made extra special by Pennsylvania's association with the 28th Division. Um, the 28th Infantry Division is still part of the Pennsylvania National Guard, um, and they, they played a very historic role in both World War I and World War II. Um, the museum's home is uh, on the grounds of what used to be Theodore Bowles Estate, Bull was responsible for fielding the first uh, mounted machine gun troop uh, just before World War I, and he used those as a training grounds. Um, so our history is really deeply rooted in Pennsylvania's involvement with the military, and you know we're, we're lucky to be there, and it's because of Theodore Bull. So 
when you saw this position open, uh, did, were you always a, did you have an interest in military things or was this, oh, here's an opportunity, I'll, you know, I'll apply. A little bit of both, actually. Um, I, I was always interested in military history, particularly the Civil War history, Revolutionary War history. Um, but the other part of that, too, was it was a little closer to what I consider my home and, and an opportunity to kind of taste what life was like outside of Harrisburg. I had been in that area for a long time, and it seemed like a really great opportunity to do something new. Um, also, I was... I've, I'm the first permanent curator the military museum has ever had. Um, we've been there a little more than 50 years and there's been, obviously there's been curators there in the past, but never on a permanent full-time basis. So I was really excited for the opportunity to kind of dig into that collection and really understand some of the great stories that they've collected over the years. What do you say to somebody that says, I don't really, military stuff is just not my thing. Why should I come walk through your museum? What do you say to that person? Oh, gosh. it's. Uh, I think people get uh, a misconception that military history is about guns and blowing things up and violence. But <laughs> look look beyond the the, you know, OD green and the guns and the tanks and, you know, think about the stories of the people who were using those objects. They're very human stories. Uh, almost everyone in Pennsylvania has a relative who served in the military at one time or another. And their stories have shaped how we get to live in this state and, you know, learn about the story, look past, look past that and, uh, there's something there everyone can connect to. So, so here's the million dollar question. And the way I was thinking about asking you this was, how do you make a museum sexy or attractive? And in that sense, like, how do you get past just showing an M1 Grand rifle and saying this was carried in World War One? How do you make that human connection with the people walking through that museum? Oh, by telling you about you know the the person's life um one collection that's really stuck with me that we just recently acquired uh was some letters written by a man who served in world war one from pennsylvania um he was of german descent and they he was actually recruited into the military to serve as an interpreter we have his uniform and we have his letters and uh, you know, he was a soldier just like anybody else. But for him, the, the war was a particularly unique experience. When he was sent overseas, he went back to the part of Germany where his family was from. And he was working with the American forces after the war to uh, rehab the nation. Um, and it's really fascinating. You know, it wasn't about killing people in the trenches for him. This was a very personal story. Um, and in the letters, he's writing home to the woman that would become his wife. And he said, you know, I, I hope that I can go to see the area where your family is from, too. Um, so the war, being at war is very personal in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I think when we tell those stories, people connect a lot more to that M1 Grand or that cannon. It's that's my favorite part. So we're now into, you know, we're <laughs> in 2023 with all of the technology that we have. What are some of the things that 
what are some of the new ways that you are able to tell these types of stories that 25 years ago you couldn't have done? So one thing that uh, I've been we've been debating a lot about at the museum, you know, between me and my colleagues, um, we don't get letters anymore. Um, the everything has become very digital, and it's changed how soldiers communicate with their families. It's changed the kind of objects that they bring home. And uh, we've been talking recently about how do we how do we tell the same kind of story when a soldier was just emailing home or we don't have any physical pictures. I never thought about that. It, it's uh, my family is very blessed that we have quite a collection of letters from our grandfather to our grandmother during World War Two. They wrote almost like two, three times a week, and they save them all. And we have these, and we have we have copies of letters from Civil War veterans, too, writing home that we have in our possession. We're very lucky. I never even thought about, if we're looking at, you know, the Iraq War or the Afghanistan War, those guys are emailing or texting home to their to their wife or their loved one or their family. So how how do you approach that? Well, you know, that's a question we're still trying to answer. And I think a lot of it is going to come down to being able to speak with those soldiers. Um, in this case, we're very lucky because those guys are still with us and, and women. Um, oral history is going to be, I think, is going to be a much bigger part of my job than it ever was before, because we don't have the same kinds of physical objects to tell that story. So do you envision a museums in the future having rooms where you go in and you're watching videos, I guess, of oral histories? I, I imagine that probably is the future, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's crazy to think about. I never, ever thought about that. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to change everything because we don't we don't have physical pictures like we used to. We don't have the physical communication that we used to have. I just never thought about that. Yeah, something else that's uh, interesting that's probably very specific to the military history field. Um, during World War II, uh, Grandpa could bring home almost everything that he carried with him. He could bring home souvenirs. He could take weapons, helmets. Um, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, anymore, all that a soldier might come home with is the uniform that he was wearing. Um, there won't be the, uh, I, I won't have grandpa's M1 grand to donate. You're not allowed to bring those things home. Um, so it's really going to have to force us to ask some questions about how, how we are going to talk about that. It's, it's, it's a big change. So do you guys, I, I would imagine, yes, but I don't know for sure. Do you guys have displays for the Iraq and Afghanistan war in the museum? We don't currently, but uh, something very exciting that's happening behind the scenes is plans for a brand new permanent exhibit um, that will drastically change the way the museum looks inside and it will give us the opportunity to tell some of those more recent stories i think i mean it's so important i because the like you said those people are still alive and to be able to tell that i think often too we walk through a museum and everything's everything's dead you know it's like this is all stuff from way before my time but when you're looking at a museum like what you have right now where you work i should say that is very much part of our history that is you know might only be 10 years old or less in some instances and to be able to tell that story with the people that actually fought those battles and were there and you know boots on the ground that type of stuff it's just insane to think about we are uh, probably one of the few 
museums that will be constantly growing. Like, you know, you might have a museum dedicated to like a, a religious society or, you know, a particular industry that's no longer functional, but there are men and women from Pennsylvania deployed right now all over the world. So we're constantly growing. We're constantly collecting new stories to tell, which makes it a really exciting place to be. Yeah, it must be. You're bringing up so many things I never even really thought about. It's really interesting. And it is, it will, it'll have to be a challenge moving forward just from the, from the, uh, just thinking of like objects aspect of a museum and, and maybe that is maybe maybe museums of the future will be this like sci-fi futuristic type thing that we can't even really imagine what it would be like today to tell the era that we're living in and not just thinking outside of military but even in the era that we're living in now minus military what do we have in our society that is tangible anymore when we think about exactly. that yeah it's crazy to think about that's it's so crazy um Oh, that's really interesting. Um, here's a question for you. Uh, mm -hmm. If you could run any museum in the world, which one would it be and why? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How about that? How about that? <laughs> that's a great question. You've had to have thought about it. Did you ever think about that? Like you know, a little bit. Um, boy, I might even pick a museum that I've never been to. I, I think the British Museum would be probably one of the coolest places in the world to be because they have literally everything <laughs> yeah they do yeah they do and you know I, I i recognize that some of their collections can be kind of problematic but I mean, <laughs> that's okay that's one way of putting it okay <laughs> they've got things from you know the dawn of time to the present day and I, I think that would be really great to be able to to be immersed in that that would be cool <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, oh, I was something I was going to ask you. And I just it just left my mind. No. Um, oh, okay. Let me ask you this question. So um, you're again, you're in the elevator. You got a family with young kids, and you hear them saying, "Oh, what can we do this summer? We're looking for something to do." How do you sell going to a museum to a young family or a family with children? Yeah, that that one's a, a challenge. Um, getting kids to connect to military history in particular is is tough um i know in the past when I, i've dealt with family groups that have been in the museum i talk about um some of the things that kids did on the home front to make them uh understand that throughout periods of great conflict um kids played a huge role in helping make america successful and uh kids really seem to get excited about that um young young kids in particular are also really fascinated by great big stuff and we have a lot of great big stuff um with the, with the tanks and things kids kids get really excited about that and if you can talk to them about how the tanks worked and how the jeeps were used um you can really get a kid excited pretty quick all right, now I'm going to ask you a tough question, or at least I think it's a tough question. And if, if you don't feel comfortable answering it, that's fine. Um, we often hear in society and in the news and in social media that, you know, Americans don't know their history. We're not teaching these kids what they should be learning. Um, what, what do you say when you hear people say stuff like that? I think kids are soaking up a lot more about our history than we think they are. Um, I, I do recognize that the way history is being taught in school has changed a lot, 
but I've run into. So can I add, as a, as a public educator, in your opinion, this is not you're not speaking on behalf of the military museum. This is this is Jen Eaton now saying, how how is it different, and is it better, worse, or different? I think it's just different. Um, I think we tend to. And maybe this has always been true, and, and it's tough for me to look at it as someone who's so deeply involved in the field. But I think we tend to gloss over um, how how difficult history can be sometimes. And I think we spend a lot of time focusing on dates and facts. And I don't know that kids really connect to that very well all the time. Uh, you know, memorizing the dates of the Revolutionary War. That doesn't mean a lot. What what did the Revolutionary War do? How did it change the experience of people living in the nation? I, and I don't know that we necessarily always do a great job at that. Uh, I would I would agree with you 100%. I think it keeps going back to this idea, and I've talked a lot about this on my podcast, that I think the way we learn the best is by storytelling. And that's what, in my mind, and I teach a history class every year at my school, and I try to approach it more from that aspect. And it, yes, dates are somewhat important, of course, and names are important, but they don't mean anything out of context. Uh, and I think, you know, that's what I think. Mo the, the good museums do that well. They tell the story. And I think I agree with you. I think all too often we've, as Americans, maybe we view history as, well, okay, this date, this name, this battle, this war, bam, bam, bam. And we don't make the connection to the greater story of how that fits in our story. Um, but that's tough. I mean, that is really tough to do, too. I think that we often, it's easy to get up and say, okay, guys, uh, 1776, July 4th, Boom, we know that. Okay, uh, April 1861, Fort Sumter. Boom. Okay, great. And we think, oh, we know our history, but we, don't. <laughs> but we don't. We don't. <laughs> exactly. It is tough. It, it's very tough. And you know, that's that's a lot of material for a kid of any age to digest. Um, but I, I do think it's really important. I think I think some of it too, and I hate to use this, but I really think it is is. History has a bad marketing, has a bad brand, and yeah. I think I think it needs it needs jazzed up some. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what those answers are. I think one of the beauties of things like a TikTok or even Instagram and social media is that you can. And I I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think you can use the, those platforms could be used to really make history sexy. And, Absolutely. And. I, so uh, so on behalf of like the museum aspect, do you guys use, how do you use social media? How do you approach social media? We do use it. I, I would say that we don't use it to the full extent that, that we could, um, but I'm lucky where I work, we've got a, a pretty young team who's pretty, pretty savvy with that. Um, and particularly during the summer, like when we have events, when we've got reenactors on site or, uh, there's there's a, a dynamic speaker going on at the museum. Um, we've got folks on staff who've been really great about making sure that gets out there on Facebook or, you know, making a TikTok from the point of view of a team of reenactors showing you what it was like to be in Vietnam. Um, I think I think it's a really underutilized tool. Um, we could be doing more of that to really, you know, immerse people in the experience. 
I think also, I, I think that is sadly or positively, I don't know how to look at it yet, but that is a a way of the future in that sense. And, and it is the it is the key to getting people in your doors, too. Um, but it takes time like anything else. Like people tell me, too, with everything I'm doing with my Pennsylvania Dutch stuff. And like well, you got to do more of the TikTok stuff and you got to do more of these Instagram stories. I'm like, when do I do all this stuff? When am I supposed to do all this stuff? And I'm sure it's the same. You know, you probably have great ideas of, oh, we could do this for a TikTok or we could do this for an Instagram story. But it's you also have a full time job that you're trying to, you know, do the museum stuff. And it's it's crazy. It, it But I really feel that I mean, I'm, I'm working with teenagers every day and I see just how powerful those 30 second video clips or that minute long instagram story is for those kids and if you can hook them to come visit a museum by doing those you're gonna bring other people too it's really you know but it's 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 things that you know the majority of people on your staff probably have never you weren't trained you know in that type of (laughs) This aspect of, well, you got to have marketing, you got to have brand, you got to have social media, all this. It's it's so, it's such a Wild West situation, I think, too, to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, oh, it's there's, crazy. Uh, there's some museums out there that are doing a really great job with that. And, you know, we spend time over lunch or in staff meetings, it's like, man, look at what this museum is doing. That's super cool. How can we do that here with our little team? Sure. Um, there's only five of us. So we've, we've got our hands full, but it's... Um, so much it's a great opportunity for us to be out there so before we move into the last portion of our interview i want to give you the opportunity to to make a plug for the pennsylvania military museum so i'll, I'll definitely put a link to your website on the, in the show notes so people can check it out and share that but this episode is going to be coming out in in february so what what's happening down the road in 2023 is there anything that you'd really love to let the listeners know that's that's going to be happening or things that you know why come visit i mean you already told us the mission and the story of the military museum but you know summer's a great time to check out happy valley and you can pop into or if you're up for a home penn state football game pop over to bullsburg and check out the museum but is there anything you guys got on the on the big whiteboard coming up in 2023 that you'd love to let people know about yeah we've got a couple big events coming up throughout the year um we're still working on our calendar for 2023 but uh, keep your eye out i know we're going to do a big event for world war one in april um we'll have reenactors on site talking about about pennsylvania's involvement in that war um, we have a really great group coming up in the fall to help us uh, commemorate the anniversary of the Spanish-American War. Well, there's which, one that nobody knows anything yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, I'm particularly excited about that. There's a, a great group in the Mount Gretna area whose who's interest is in pre-World War I Pennsylvania military history. Um, so they're going to put on some great programs for us. Um, we have a great World War II event coming up. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. So that's always a a big weekend in Bullsburg since it is reputedly the home of Memorial Day. Right. Um, So check our calendar. We've got some really exciting uh, events coming up. We've got a another whiskey tasting opportunity in July. Uh, We had a really successful program last year that uh, we paired with 
big spring spirits on to get them out and get folks tasting their product and learn a little bit about the whiskey rebellion. So that's perfect. Like people it's making those connections. Like somebody that's thinking, Oh, it's just guns and museum, you know, uniforms. But you know, there's these stories in in Pennsylvania history, particularly like the whiskey rebellion that a lot of people probably aren't familiar with and and like how vital alcohol played a role in our history too. So that's awesome. When I saw you guys did that last year, I'm glad to hear you're doing it again. Uh, Big Springs is a great shout out to them. They're a great distillery here in in center County. Um, But just telling that aspect of our history, and I think that's people don't realize how multifaceted our story is. I think that's and it's it's tough to get that message out like we've talked about already today to, in this interview. But um, you just keep doing the keep fighting the good fight, I guess we'd say. Jen, yeah, right? we'll keep trying. We've got a couple opportunities, too, where people can come and uh, take a, a little closer look at some of the uh, vehicles on the grounds. We have a great historian we work with for that. He can tell you everything you wanted to know about tanks. And it's pretty great. He's a great guy. So we've got a lot going on. Well, awesome. Like I said, everybody, I'll link uh, the Pennsylvania Military Museum in the show notes down below. You can check out their website. I guess you guys are all on social media, too, so you can follow them on Facebook and all the other platforms, I'm sure, too. We're out there everywhere. We're out there everywhere telling the story. (laughs) Well, Jen, we close every episode out with 10 quick questions. This is We're we're off the Military History Museum. We're off museums. We're going to just talk to Jenny now for a little bit. Um, Are you ready for your 10 quick questions? I'm ready. Awesome. Here we go. Number one, what is your morning drink of choice? Coffee. And how do you take your coffee? Uh, black with a little sugar. There we go. I I often ask, that is probably the most popular answer I get, but I, I often wonder, how old were you when you started drinking coffee? Ooh, uh, probably in college. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's funny, you know, some people you get the same like, oh, when I started working or when I was in college, but then like you get people like me that was like, I don't know, nine or 10 and my grandparents were like, oh, you can have a cup of coffee, go ahead, because they were always drinking coffee all day long. Oh, yeah. So it was like, oh, it was already there. Yeah. Um, I might have an addiction problem, maybe, <laughs> probably. Yes. <laughs> all right. Question number two. Who is a go-to musical artist or group for you? Oh, oh, that's tough. Um, The Gaslight Anthem. Tell me about that band. So they're a band from New Jersey, um, kind of uh, Americana, I would say, is their their genre. Um, you know, just guys singing about falling in love and running around in cars and, you know, very, very American kind of stuff. <laughs> and what was the name of the band again? The Gaslight Anthem. All right, guys, check out Gaslight Anthem. I'm going to check them. I love Americana music, so I'll definitely. I Maybe I heard them and just didn't realize that I heard them. Yeah, I'll definitely they're, they're check them tiny, out. So That's okay. That's okay. All right, good. Uh, number three, what, okay. what movie can you watch over and over again and it doesn't get old? Ooh. Oh, tough call. The Last of the Mohicans. Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, love it. Okay, I've I've had quite a lot of history people on my podcast before, and I've asked this to a couple of them, and I'm going to ask you the same question. In your opinion, what movie is the most historically accurate? Oh, boy. Um, Glory is pretty close. 
That's that one. They got pretty well right. I think I think I read once that the only thing they really got wrong was they were marching the wrong direction on the beat. Oh, my gosh. I never heard that. <laughs> that if that's all they did wrong, then that's pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, everyone, if you've never seen Glory, my goodness, that is a movie that you have to add to your list. So what movie gets it really wrong historically? Ooh, or what is a boy. movie that really gets it wrong? The Patriot. <sighs> that was answered by somebody else as well. That's pretty rough. That one's hard to watch. <laughs> from a historical, I'm from storytelling. Oh, it's brilliant. You know, yeah. it, it sucks you in 100%. But yeah, from a historical aspect, um, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> I agree with you on that. So you said you were a lover of Civil War. Is yeah. Glory your go-to Civil War movie? Yeah, probably. Um, so I'll, I'll tell kind of a funny story. I, I always really loved the movie Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. um, but in between college semesters, I worked in a restaurant where that movie played on a loop inside the bar. And I, I don't think I can ever watch that movie again. You've been Gettysburg'd out. <laughs> I've been Gettysburg'd out. So I think, you know, for telling a, a great story about the Civil War and a, a story that maybe not everybody knows, Glory, like, they really do everything right. They do. It's such a good film. Such a good film. Okay, number four. What is the last thing that you read? The last thing that I read? Um... I can't remember the title of it now, but it is E.B. Sledge's story of his time in the Marine Corps during World War II. Um, he was one of the men that HBO based the miniseries The Pacific off of. Okay. So I would I imagine. I would imagine with your job, you read a lot and you have to read a yeah. lot. Um, what's your go to reading when you're not working? Is it fiction, nonfiction, history? What is it? Fiction mostly, um, historical fiction, <laughs> definitely uh, fiction. Um, it's been a long time though since I've picked up a book just to read for fun. Um, I've been doing some writing on the side for PA Heritage Magazine. So when I'm not reading history for work, I'm reading history for fun. Uh, is, is there an author out there that if someone wanted to get into reading history and even like historical fiction, is there somebody you could recommend to the audience? Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. Um, or someone that I'm thinking of like, you know, uh, some of these great writers like McCullough and those that have written these wonderful biographies of famous Americans. Is there one of those that you would recommend for somebody that's just dipping their toes into the water of reading history? McCullough's books are a great place to start. I think he is very readable, yeah, um, I agree. very accessible for folks who maybe not our history lovers to begin with. Yeah, and, he does okay. a great job of bringing you into the fold. Which one? Which book do you tell somebody to, here you go. You're buying him a Christmas present. Here's the book I would recommend from McCullough. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. I know it. <laughs> that one's tough. That's really tough. Um, I read the one that he wrote about the Johnstown flood not too long ago. And that one really stuck with me because it was such a horrific experience. Yeah. yeah. And something completely preventable. Um, I might pick that one just because I think it's a story not a lot of people know. And, you know, that's that's fresh in my mind. I, I read that book and I've also seen a bunch of documentaries about it. And the first time I ever went to Johnstown, you can go there to where the actual the, the historic site is there and you can you can see, you know, pictures from the day. And 
it's outside of town where the dam breast was. And you don't, you kind of understand it. But then when you go to Johnstown itself, and if you go up the incline and you look at that town, you can see exactly, it's a giant bowl. It's like, yeah. there was nowhere for the water to go. It's so crazy how that town is like just built in this natural bowl. It's like, well, then that's when it really made clear to me, like, as we went to the National Historic Site first and then went into Johnstown, it's like, oh, no wonder. It's like, yeah. Look at that. yeah. And that is a cool historic site, people. If you've never been to the Johnstown Flood Museum uh, and the the historic site, put that on your bucket list for Pen for Pennsylvania. You need a day trip in the summer. It's I recommend it. It's a really cool site. It really is. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? Mushrooms. Oh, yay! That's the right answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> number six: laying on the beach or going for a hike? Oh, going for a hike, hands down. Amen. Amen. Number seven, you've invited me over for dinner. What are you making? What am I making? Ooh, lasagna, maybe. Okay. Uh, also a fan of old school classics, like a good roast chicken. You can't beat a roast chicken, can you? It's yeah. so, uh, I agree. Good. It sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Right. Number eight, dream vacation destination. England. I'd love to go to, to Great Britain in general, tour the British Isles. Have Have you been? I have not. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's history everywhere. It's like dripping with history. <laughs> My family has very deep Scottish and Irish roots, so I, I think that would be... Uh, Oh, yeah. Make like the pilgrimage, right? You're going on yeah. your pilgrimage. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. All right. What is something you're afraid of? Spiders. Okay. Are you the kind of person that will like scream when you see one? I might not scream, but I'm probably going to leave the room if it's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Last question. What job other than one that you've had, would you love to have? Wow. Oh my gosh. I would love to be an antiques appraiser like on antiques roadshow yeah. <laughs> like that yeah i think that's really cool i love i love like the depth of knowledge that those people have it's, it just amazes me and being able to see like the crowning glory of certain types of objects like this one in a million kind of piece of glass or whatever i think that's really fascinating and i'd I, love to do that job i often I, I i've watched that show for years and i often wonder what they think when you got like billy bob's walking in with this like priceless piece and he's got it in like a paper bag or something he's like <laughs> well hey i got this uh found this at a yard sale and the guy you know and then they cut to like they're having this actual interview you know i'm thinking like what is going through their minds and they're like do you have any idea what you have here <laughs> Yeah, yeah, truly. So I, I got to go to the Antiques Roadshow when they were in Harrisburg a few years ago. Okay. Um, they they offered tickets to that by lottery. And I was like, well, that would be cool. I'm going to do it. And and I got tickets. Um, but then the question becomes, what do you bring? Yeah. And I drug a chicken incubator to the Antiques Roadshow that my brother found in someone's garage. And it, it was, I mean, it wasn't greatly valuable, but it was a lot more valuable than I thought it was. And I had been sitting on it all day, <laughs> but it, it's, it's fascinating to see how that works and to see these lines of people who really are just carrying their stuff in grocery bags. 
um, without any idea of what they might have. You're right. Those appraisers, they are, they know it's, it's crazy what they know, or at least yeah. it sure seems that way on, on TV, right? Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. I really, that appeals to me being that knowledgeable about one specific one thing. Subject. Yeah. Like Chinese porcelain. I know everything there is to know about Chinese porcelain yeah, or something like that. Esoteric, but it's yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> Jen, this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show. You are a wealth of knowledge too, for sure. Well, <laughs> and I hope I hope that uh, after hearing this, some people are going to be like, you know what? I'm going to Bowlesburg this summer because yeah. it truly, you don't have to be a fan of the of military to enjoy the military museum. I've been multiple times uh, and I plan on keep going. I'll, I'll go again for sure. Uh, and like I said, we'll have a link to the museum on the web, on the show notes uh, so you can check out more, follow them on social media. Jen Eaton, thanks so much for coming up on the front porch. Thank you, it was wonderful. Well, best of luck. Uh, I am waiting to see the TikToks, get those going. Uh, <laughs> Cause I think you're gonna we'll bring some it. people in. Yeah, get on Absolutely. that. <laughs> All right, thanks Jen so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. (music) 